Well, thank you very much for the privilege of being here. I, uh, yeah, my name is Heath. I've been married for 22 years. I have a beautiful wife, and I can say that. And I have got a 20-year-old daughter who spent the summer in India on a missions trip, and I have a 16-year-old son who's going into grade 12. Uh, so we're a, a full house, sort of. Um, I was, this wasn't in the notes, but I'm going to start with a story. As you get to know me, you'll know that I like to tell stories, but this is an important one due to your focus on prayer. 65 years ago, in the middle of nowhere, this little church, about the size of this church, in the middle of nowhere, Alberta, decided it really, really wanted to reach its neighbors. So what did it do? It employed the only strategy that they knew how, and they started praying for their neighbors. So on this list, they had this two, three-week, 24-hour prayer, and they decided that this couple, Bill and Eileen, were, were on this list. And, you know, if you think of people who are outside of faith, these guys were the poster child. You know, Eileen was an Irish background lady, cursed like a sailor. She could put, you know, if you had bald hair, she could grow hair on your hair, you know, head with, with her bad words. Bill was just kind of a silent type, but he was, he was a tough working logger guy. And these guys were on that list. They had four kids at the time. The youngest was about two. So one night, Bill wakes up in the middle of the night and he sees a glowing vision of a man standing on his bed, bleeding on him. He's like, well, that's not something you see every day. And the man said to him, this blood isn't just for those people that go up the hill to the church, it's for you. Bill started weeping. You see, they'd been having marital problems. <laughs> Eileen was tough, and he didn't know what to do. Sometime later, Eileen says to Bill, Wow, you know, maybe we've got to stop going to the dance hall down the street, and maybe we should start going to those people up the hill at the church. So as a couple, they packed up their kids, and they walked into the church, and they met Christ. That couple was my grandparents. The two-year-old was my dad. So I wanted to encourage you this morning. I just felt compelled to encourage you. The power of prayer is real. You guys have a prayer focus. The fact that I'm standing up here now, Eileen, about a year before she died, I, we were missionaries in Greece, and I was home on a furlough. And the last time I saw my grandmother, Eileen, she said to me, you know, Heath, I always knew one of my grandkids would be in the ministry, but I never thought it would be you. <laughs> what do you do with that? Anyway... My wife and I, to, to complete the story, because, you know, I like Christopher Nolan films, so we have to tell things in a different timeline. Um, my wife and I spent 10 years in Athens, Greece. First few years, we worked with refugees. The last few years, we partnered with Redeemer City to City. You know, if you've heard of kind of Tim Keller, that kind of like, we planted a Redeemer City to City uh, church in, in central Athens. And, you know, we didn't want to do it easy, so we decided that we would do it in an anarchist neighborhood, you know, with Molotov cocktails and riots. And if you've ever been in 100,000 people chanting, I hate the police, it's something else, let me tell you. Anyway, uh, I, wanted, I want to share my heart with you. And I just felt as though I needed to encourage you this morning. So I have a question for you. Is there hope in suffering? Yeah. We, we all know that, but, but some of us, you know, are actually dealing with the worst things in our life. My neighbor downstairs, I live in like a BC box, and I, this older gentleman downstairs, he just, in tears, I got, I got home yesterday, and he's in tears, 75 years old, he says, Heath, I have Parkinson's, what do I do? He's not a believer. Some of you might be struggling emotionally. Some are just kind of treading water here with the, you know, the, 
stuff in life. Some of you are dreading the fall and all that encompasses what is going to happen up till Christmas. Oh, I said the C word. Some of us might be in the pitched battle of depression right here, right now. I was teaching at a camp last week on Quadra Island, and one of the camp counselors in training tried to commit suicide. That's the reality that some of us are living in with right now. Some of you might be just persecuted by family and friends just for showing up here on a Sunday morning because you're going to church. So I ask you again, is there hope in suffering in all of this? Is there a purpose to all this mess? Well, this morning, typical fashion, I'm going to give you the end first. (laughs) I want to remind you the power of the gospel this morning, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to know that despite whatever current struggles you're embroiled in, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you need to be reminded that your identity is not defined by what you do or how you respond to it, not by your situation, not by the current events, not by Justin Trudeau or Donald Trump. You need to know that Jesus defeated death, and absolutely you were secure in God's love. Your current situation, no matter how rough it is, whether it's maxed out credit cards from a you know, summertime holiday or whether you've got an unexpected bill that you just don't know how you can pay, you need to know that God loves you. And if you believe, your identity is in Christ and you are loved. So our text this morning is found in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Now we're reading from the ESV. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now, this morning I would like to tell you a missionary story. I grew up in a denomination that we'd had missionaries come every month, and I, I love missionary stories. But this isn't going to be a, you know, a jungle story, a bug story, or a cannibal story, or no. My wife and I, we lived in central Athens. You know, when your kid's on the playground, you have to go, ooh, okay, dude, yep, play on the swings, just watch out for the needles. That's the kind of story I'm going to tell. A story of Molotov cocktails, graffiti, anarchists. That's where we did work. That's where we ministered. In a one year, I counted 50 cars that burned within a block radius of our house. That was kind of fun. Uh, yeah, anyway. But I'm not going to tell an anarchist story. I'm going to tell a refugee story. In the past few years, we've all heard of this juggernaut of refugee stuff. Everybody and their dogs, uncles, brother-in-law is trying to get to Europe. And so I worked with an organization that was in the front lines of this work. We would, at that time, there was about... 
100 people a day would kind of come into the city, you know, new, mission, new uh, refugees every single day. You know, after all this blew up, now there's about 1,000 coming in a day. It's pretty, pretty scary. So about 100 people are coming in a day. So we had this refugee center right downtown, and uh, we fed anywhere from two to 500 guys at a time. Most of them at that time. It was during Arab Spring. So there were a lot of migrants from, you know, Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria. There were some Iraqis, some Syrians, and people from Iran. And so what, what was the regular drill was we would uh, give a five-minute gospel presentation, and then we would serve the food. Now, the five-minute gospel presentation was really cool. I would say a sentence in English. My friend would say a sentence, the same thing, translated into Farsi, then into Arabic, then into French, and then into Dari. And by the time it got back to me here, I'm like, oh, what did I, what did I say again? So it was really hard to, to actually get a good flow. So basically, it was just a drive-by shooting, essentially, of the gospel. And so what I would do is I would say, look, if you want to know more about Jesus, come Wednesday. Come Wednesday. We've got this, you know, we called it a kind of our food evangelism, we called it. It's kind of a no-holds-barred, speaker's corner kind of approach. Any question was answered as long as it was respectful. But the real cool gig was, so that I, you know, you could tell by my robust athletic body that I love to cook. I love to eat. So I would research where these guys were coming from, and I would cook food, try to cook as ethnic food for them as close to home as they could get. Because, man, these guys, some of them had been on the road for years. They'd been sleeping in ditches in the parks. This one guy, he's, he's got tears in his eyes. Heath, do not be offended, but you cook like a grandma. I'm like, that is the best compliment a guy could ever get. So, you know, 30 of the usual. We'd average about 30, 30 guys. And we would hear every question from, oh, does God... It wasn't really Jesus that was crucified on the cross to, you know... Why do, you know, American girls always wear short skirts? You know, that's the questions we dealt with every single Wednesday. So I have 30 of the usual suspects, but I noticed there's one, there's one in particular time. I noticed there's this guy, he's wearing a cross. He's new. So we have the, you know, the meal, we have the discussion time, we're visiting, we have tea afterwards, and this guy, I come up to this guy, I'm like, I gotta know. So I walk up to him and I say, look, what's with the cross? I said, usually guys from the Middle East... Just a hunch I've got, you know, they're not wearing crosses. Well, he tells me this story. He says, well, I was injured. I was injured in some of the fighting. And I'm like, okay, mental note, don't ask him which side. And I, don't, I don't know, because I probably fed terrorists. But anyway, he said, I was injured in the fighting. And I was bedridden for a whole year. I couldn't get out of my bed. I hurt my legs so bad. Says, but every week I could hear singing on the other side of the wall. And I could tell that after a while I could kind of make out that they were singing about Jesus the prophet, but I couldn't figure out what they were saying about him because it just didn't make sense what they were saying. So every week for a year I heard this singing. singing. So, so finally one day I'm well enough and I could walk and I kind of hobble next door. I'm banging on the door. And nobody answers. And the neighbor comes across and says, you have to get out of here. The police came last night and took them all away. You cannot be seen here. So I went home. I decided I needed to know more about this Jesus. So I, I knew I needed to go to a place that had a Christian influence. So I made my way from Syria through to Turkey, got on a boat, got into Athens, and I got here on Monday and I heard... You say, does anybody want to know more about Jesus? Come Wednesday. So I came today 
So could you tell me who this Jesus is and why this cross is so important? Now, this guy, here's the singing of this, a little church. The, he hears the object of our worship, and he is drawn to it. Let me tell you, my jaw was on the floor. So, now let's pause right here. Now, we're going to pretend that this is a film, and we're going to spin this around and look at it from the other side of the wall. You've got a tiny little church. Now, judging by from some of the stories coming out of Iraq at the time, you had a persecuted church. You had a small group of individuals faithfully singing every single week. Singing out loud, even though it was dangerous for them. Now, some of those people probably were wondering, man, is this, this Christianity thing, this is just too hard. Sh- should we even still do it? Maybe it's just easier if we keep silent and just live out our faith without saying anything. But no, this little church faithfully week after week after week worshipped. And when the police came, I, I can't verify it, but maybe some of them were beaten. I don't know if any of them were tortured, and I do not know if any of those little church members died for their faith. But I do know that all of this was happening without them realizing what was on the other side of the wall. This is the context of our text this morning. We're dropped right at the end of this juggernaut of chapter 8. Now, Paul, he was a dude, and he happened to write this letter to a church in Rome. And he was a fairly articulate man. Um, and so at the time, there was this Emperor Nero. It was about roughly 54 to 68 AD, somewhere in that range. And now Nero, if you believe the stories, it's kind of folklore, but if you believe the stories, Nero did not have an Ikea. He did not go to Ikea to go get his candles. So what did he do? You know, he hated Christians. So he thought, ah, oh, maybe I can dip them in wax and I can use them as patio lanterns. Yeah. We don't know if that's true or not, but regardless... The Apostle Paul is writing to a group of harassed, persecuted, struggling, depressed people who believed in Jesus. So Paul, in this chapter 8, it's probably one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. In chapter 8, we're going to put this text that I read into context. At the beginning, he says, look, Paul says that Jesus' death is essential. The basis for the deliverance of their, and their freedom from the bondage of death. That's verses 1 to 4. In other words, Jesus dies the death that we deserve. And then, in verses 5 through 11, he contrasts this life of death, life of self, versus the life of the Spirit, which is the life of freedom. And he says, look, you've got those who are living the life of self, those that are looking out for number one, essentially, cannot please God at all. They are dead. But those who actually not, do not live for themselves and are empowered by the Spirit actually have freedom. They are, they are broken free of death, and they actually have life. So then in verses 12 through 17, he says, look, that this same Spirit of God that makes dead alive, it actually it changes our identity. We are adopted as sons and daughters into a new family. We are children of God. And we actually have an inheritance that's amazing, that is through Christ. And as if it couldn't get any better, in verses 18 through 30, he informs us that we look, we have an 
all of this stuff that's broken and hurting, we actually have a hope of a new creation. Everything that has been corrupted by a living for self will actually be made new. And then he says that, look, our prayers, they are real and they will be answered. And he also says that we have a hope of future glory, which means that we as adoptees, we actually get an inheritance, which is new life. So to sum up, Paul's response to this struggling group of believers is in verse 31. He says, look, what shall we say then? If all of this is true, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him generously give us all things? You know, I love Paul's logic here. He's like, come on, guys, get it through your head. If all of this is true, then this has to be the reality. Paul reminds them who they are in Christ. Paul reminds them that they are actually loved, accepted. He reminds them of the reality of Jesus Christ, that his death frees us from ourselves. Paul reiterates this to this group of struggling Christians. He teaches them the gospel, this good news of Jesus. So in our text, he asks this group of people three questions. If God is for us, who can actually charge you with anything of wrongdoing? Who can, what can, can any of this separate you from God? That's verse 33. If God is for us, who actually has the authority to condemn you? Verse 34. And ver- number three, if God is for us, what could actually possibly set you up, separate you from the reality of God? from his love. So in verse 33, Paul says, look, who shall bring any charge to God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, what does that actually mean? There's some theological mumbo-jumbo in there. So Paul says essentially this, that no charge of wrongdoing can actually separate you from God because the text said it is God who justifies. Well, that doesn't, what does that actually mean? It says, see, We are not accepted on our merit of our own behavior. We're actually accepted on something else. It is God who accepts us, not our behavior. So it doesn't mean that we're outside of human law, though. You know, the Harry Weinsteins of this world actually have to pay for their crimes. We're not sidestepping justice here. We're talking about love. So what does this actually mean to be justified, then? You see, Paul says, essentially, in a nutshell... That God, if God is the one who actually has the power to make a dead person alive, the power to make somebody of wrongdoing righteous, meaning clean looking, to make somebody new without sin, perfect in his sight, forgiven of any of wrongdoings, if God can actually do this, then nothing in this world actually has the power to charge us with any wrongdoing that would deny us relationship with God. Because the God of the universe has declared us clean, forgiven, loved. Man, that blows my mind every time I think about it. I can't even barely wrap my pea brain around it. See, if we believe in Jesus, if we believe that he has the power to do this, then no sin can actually separate us from God. That is amazing news, guys. 
Even the vilest of offenders actually has a chance to be clean, to be forgiven. Let me tell you, that is good news. So, digging a little further in verse 34, it says, who, who then can actually condemn? Who condemn? So if nobody can, char- can charge you with anything, who can actually condemn you of any wrongdoing? You see, in other words, who is the final judge when it comes to matters of being accepted or not accepted? Who decides, essentially, what salvation is? This is where Paul gets kind of into the nuts and the bolts of how God actually makes us justified or clean. Paul says that nothing can condemn us because God sends his son, Jesus Christ. Think about it. God sends part of himself to die the death that we deserve, the penalty for our wrongdoing. See, before this act, we're all stuck. We're all charged. We're all condemned. And other scriptures say that the penalty of that is death. God, because of our wrongdoings, smallest to the greatest, we're stuck. But Jesus actually dies in our place. He he takes the punishment for us so that we can live. He rescues us. But Paul says, wait a minute, more than that, Jesus actually has victory over death. He is raised from the dead. And how he is now seated in power with God himself. So when God looks at me, when he looks at you, if you believe this reality, he doesn't see your sin He sees Jesus. So I've got a story. I've got a couple of friends, Hamza and Brahim. They're both two guys from Algeria, and I love these guys. I think one of them was a terrorist, but regardless of that, (laughs) exceptional with English, and I got along really well with these guys, and I knew them for about a year and a half. And uh, I got to the point at the end where I could just troll them, tease them ruthlessly about Islam, which... If you actually know any Islamic guys, that's a pretty intimate place to be in. So I was having a discussion. So I asked, uh, I asked Hamza, Hamza, how, how are you actually accepted into paradise? Oh, I says, come on, Heath. You know this. I'm like, yeah, but tell me. He says, look, when Allah comes time to judge, if he sees one more good thing than bad thing in my life, I'm accepted and I can go to paradise. So I say to him, Who, whose God's more powerful, mine or yours? Well, mine. I'm like, no, he's not. You're, Allah is weak. I said, my God is so powerful, so holy, so omnipotent, so enthroned that if he sees one sin in my life, I'm obliterated. I said, my God is way more powerful than yours. And of course, before he could mount a defense, I get in and I ask him another question to kind of hit him on the other side of the head. I said, wait a minute, Hamza, have you ever done bad things? He's like looking at me like I'm handicapped. And he's like, of course I've done bad things. I said, well, have you ever done something so bad that you wouldn't even tell your mom? Well, yeah. And I ask him, how do you deal with the guilt? And he says something to me that I will never forget. He looks at me, and his eyes are welling up, and he says, well, I just have to live with it, I guess. I said, buddy, my God is so powerful that he actually sent part of himself so that when he looks at me, when he looks at you, he doesn't see you, he doesn't see your sin, he doesn't see your guilt, he 
sees his son clean, perfect. That is what Paul is talking about here. That is what it means to be justified. See, we are clean. We have no guilt because of Jesus Christ, his son. We are accepted as sons and daughters by the work of Jesus. We are loved because of Jesus. We are not condemned. We have life because of Jesus. We have a future because of Jesus. We have no guilt because of Jesus. Jesus has victory over death. He takes our place and frees us from our stuff. So if that's true, Paul asks then, what can actually separate us from this reality? Who can actually change this newfound identity that we have? Can our circumstances? Can great suffering? Wars? Persecution? Starvation? Being without clothes? Threat of life? Uncertainty and confusion about our future? Not getting a law degree from Trinity? Can any of that actually separate us from God? From the freedom that we have in Christ? You know, I'm not taking this lightly. This might be our reality here right now. This, the things that we struggle with are very real. And we may feel like Paul when he quotes Psalm 44. He says, we may feel as though we are sheep slaughtered daily. But does that actually separate us from the love of God? From the work he does in our lives? even if we have to be like that little church and possibly pay the ultimate price for our faith? Can these things, great or small, separate us from this reality? Does this, seriously, does this change our identity? In verse 37, Paul answers his own question with a resounding, no, no. He says, look, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I'm sure, and we know neither life nor death, no height nor depth. Basically, he's saying anything that you can possibly think of and anything that you can possibly have not thought of, nothing of that can separate you from God. You see, in heaven one day, I actually want to connect the, I w- I want to connect the dots between this Iraqi guy and this little church. Nothing can separate us because we are more than conquerors. Now, this phrase, more than conquerors, it's actually one word in Greek. And this is where living in Greece has its benefits because, um, yeah, I speak a little bit of Greek. And, uh, yeah, it helps. So how many of you people here are wearing Nike shoes? That was random, huh? Okay. Well, the Greek word, Nike is actually a Greek word. And it actually, it's spelled, in Greek, it's Niki. And it means to be victorious, to conquer. To, strive, to, to win, to win the race, right? That's why it's there, the swoosh. So if you, have, if you look in your uh, New Testament, you've got two books, First and Second Thessalonians. Now, interesting, Alexander the Great's ancestors decided to be really cool to invade a province south of them uh, called Thessaly and pretty much obliterated them, subjected them to their rule and incorporated them into their empire. And they named this really cool city that you would call Thessalonica. Well, in Greek, it's Thessaloniki. Basically, the name pronounces and proclaims victory over Thessaly. Now, this phrase, more than conquerors, I love this word. Victory in Greek, the the verb to be victorious is nikeo. 
Hi, guys. The Greek word here is hypernikeo. Now, hyper-victorious, or as I like to say, super-victorious. This has the weight to completely obliterate your enemy, like leave nothing, no quarter, nothing left. So when Paul says we are more than conquerors, Christ has completely obliterated sin. (laughs) Completely obliterated sin. It has the weight to absolutely prevail. Now that is reassuring. I don't know about you guys, but to have Christ's work on the cross completely obliterate death, that is good news. So back to the other side of the wall. So I begin to explain to my Iraqi friend that God sent his own son, part of himself, to die the death that he deserved so that he can actually have a life that he doesn't deserve, that he can have a future that he doesn't deserve, and that God loves him so much that not only did he die for him, but that he actually sent this little church to suffer so that he could hear. That blew him away. He said, God would do that for me? That day, he surrendered his life to Christ, went to Italy the next day, and I've never seen him since. Now, some of you may feel like this little persecuted church. You may be on the other side of the wall. You may be facing impossible circumstances. You might be feeling like, well, I'm all alone. You know, well... What do I do now? You might even be questioning the efficacy of your own faith right here, right now. I want to connect the dots for you today. You need to know that if you believe that you can be super victorious and that nothing can actually separate you from God. Think about this. This is the part that blows my mind. Think about this. Our worship, how we act in public during our struggles may be the only chance someone else hears or sees Jesus Christ. See, you guys need a perspective change, just like I did. Some of you are like that little church in Iraq. And if you're here today, understand this reality. Have hope that God loves you. He sees your pain. He has the ultimate victory. And there will be justice that will come in the future. He has victory over our circumstances, no matter how dire they seem. Now, some of you have capitulated. You're just kind of going through the motions. You're wondering, is this all that there is? I've been there. I lived a lot of years there. Now, you may be troubling, you know, struggling to follow all the rules. You may be hoping that, okay, I've done, I've done more good things than bad things like Hamza, and maybe, maybe God won't look at my guilt but you're still living in guilt and you're still living in shame. You may have even been betrayed by people closest to you and the hardships of this world seem to have created a chasm so deep from anything that resembles a loving God. You ultimately are lost, just like my Iraqi friend. You need to hear afresh that God loves you, that he sent his son, part of himself, to die for you, so that you can have a new identity, so that it can actually just be more than is this all there is, but actually have power that lasts. You see, 
If you accept the reality of Jesus, you have a new identity. You need to stop doing it yourself. And finally, some of you guys here, I hope none, but some of you might be like my Iraqi friend. You're kind of chewed up by the world. You're fresh off the boat. You may have heard of Jesus, but you're not really quite sure where he fits in the grand scheme of the cosmos, and you're like, I don't get it. But you know that the world is messed up, and you're struggling. You need to hear what my Iraqi friend here, that actually Jesus loves you, he cares for you, and, he, and so much so that he actually sacrificed himself so that you can have a new identity in him. You need to hear that you can be super victorious. That night I went home. I explained this story to my wife, and I wept. I wept. But they weren't really tears of you know, sorrow. They were tears of joy, tears of hope, because through Christ, we are more than conquerors. We are super victorious. And this is cause for great hope, despite the tough realities of our lives. Today, I want to connect the dots that despite all the trouble in this world, there is a point of hope, and that hope is in Jesus Christ. See, this is why we celebrate communion. I don't know if you guys connect the dots. These emblems here, the cup representing Christ's blood, the body which is broken, they represent freedom. This here is super victorious, the obliteration of death. So as the team comes for worship and as we come and do communion, you need to be reminded he stands in the gap for you so that when God looks at you, he sees that, not the ugly bits of Heath. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26, we have this. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it and remember... <clears throat> In remembrance of me, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, as I understand, it's a practice at the rock that if you believe in Jesus, if you believe this reality, if you've been baptized into a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you're free to take the cup. If you haven't, if you're curious, talk to one of the leaders, but just abstain, and that's okay. Nobody's going to judge you. So, would you come? Um... Yeah, I don't know what to do next, but that's okay. Anybody, Bueller, anybody, no. Whatever team comes to help serve, um, if there's worship, and uh, as, you t as you take the emblems, yeah, come, take, and praise God for being super victorious.